good. A renowned uh, sociologist and author, uh, Andrew Greeley, once said that um, the basic ingredients for a good marriage are friendship plus sex. I thought about that, and it kind of freaked me out. I mean, surely there's more to it than that, right? And I'm convinced that there is. But, but what is it? I mean, what more is it? And how do you find it? Because if you're married, and or if you've seen marriages, you kind of know that there's this endless search that goes on for what's missing, what the keys are, what, what produces our picture of what it's supposed to be like, how it's supposed to work. And so we, we, we search after things, so we look, at com- we look for commonalities in another person. And we think some, maybe some combination of that will get us there. Or, or personality tests and, and a mesh of two types of personalities. You get the right mix. It's like the right dog breed. You know, you mix them together and you get a cute mutt, and that's the perfect little disposition for a marriage. Or, or maybe it's that the right sexual compatibility has a long way to go toward that. Or, or we hear, well, you know, you just have to laugh together. If you could just laugh together, then, you, then maybe that's the missing ingredient. Or there's levels or degrees or types of communication styles that maybe work or conflict resolution or, or roles that people are in. And there's this constant search going on all the time for, well, is there such a thing as the pivotal central aspects that make marriage whole, that make it one, that make it healthy? And then we turn to God. This is as close as you're going to get around here to a formula, all right? Because we, today we're talking about marriage is two magic words. I don't really mean that. We title things a lot around here that we don't really mean. It's just to get your attention. <laughs> but there are two things. When God answers a question, when God turns his lens and we want to look through it, I'm interested to see what God, the maker, says about this. And if he does say something about it, then I want to pay attention. When we look at where he turns the lens and what he focuses on, that lens does focus on two very simple words that represent two very complex implications and applications. But in his word, we're going to see these two words, and they are going to take us as probably as close as we can get to the missing ingredients or the key elements that could go. And I'm going to suggest to you today that whether you're married or not, this is going to reflect on you as a man or you as a woman. And when you bring these things together, they will go farther toward creating health in a male-female relationship than, than anything else you can try. Those two words are the words love and respect. And I'm going to draw liberally today from an author who you, many of you have read the book of. of. And the, the, the book is from the same title, and it's called Love and Respect. It's by Dr. Emerson Egriches. I've sat under him. I've heard him. And um, I recommend this. If you're, if you're thinking about marriage or are married and have never read the, uh, this book, it's, I will suggest it's w- well worth your time. But what, it's not the magic of a book that's going to do it. It's what he's pointing to that, that is seen in Scripture. And we're going to take a look at where that comes from, and what exactly that means, all right? So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you, if you have access to one, two passages, and I'm going to zero in on that he does, and that we're going to see what Scripture does with these two passages, both in the New Testament. One is in Ephesians chapter 5, 
And the second one is in 1 Peter chapter 3. Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3. I'm going to go back and forth a little bit in those two passages and invite you to do that with me. And we're going to see what God means when he says this because what we're going to find out. You know, I, I, when, I, when I was growing up, I heard about arranged marriages in like other cultures. And that I, I just really bothered me. I thought, man, thank God I am not in a, in a culture where I have to see my bride on the wedding day and go, oh, man, is she ugly or not? You know, I'm not just being honest, right? But do you know that historically and even culturally and now arranged marriages have a higher level of satisfaction reported in their marriages than those that are not arranged marriages? Why? How could that be? What, what's going on with that? To some degree, some of those are based on Things other than what we've established happy marriage about. You implement these things. This is what I'm going to suggest to you too. That that the the elements that God's going to give us, love and respect, when those things are put in properly in a marriage, mutually done, you can be happily married to anybody. You might have a spouse right now that you cannot stand the sight of. You may say, what a mistake. You may have all kinds of history. These things can make a healthy, vibrant marriage like in an arranged marriage. It can happen if these things are put into to place. So I'm not going to be able to convey to you the passion which, which, with which I feel this today. I don't think I can raise my presentation enough to do that. But please know that when we, if we really want to see marriage the way God designed it to be, this is worth paying attention to. So, this all stems from, there's one verse that kind of summarizes it. It's the, at the very last verse of Ephesians chapter 5. And, and again, this is a very common passage that, that has, is used for weddings and for premarital counseling and helping people understand husbands and wives. But it ends with this kind of summary statement. It says, however, each one of you, talking to the men, the husbands, must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The two words are used there, love for the man to dispense toward the woman and respect for the woman to dispense toward the man. What, what precedes that is an explanation of kind of what that means. And as, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you know when we talk about love, we're not, the word is not talking about an emotional expression. It's not talking about being romantic. It is, it is the word agape, and, um, and the husbands in particular are called to do that. Now, very quickly, people will say, well, aren't, husbands, aren't wives supposed to love their husbands? Of course. Aren't husbands supposed to respect their wives? Yes, but what God's going to suggest is that because of how you are uniquely created and the roles for which we are designed to be in marriage, the primary purpose, the primary focus for the husbands, for the men, is the one word. The call on them in this passage is going to be husbands, focus on this, love, agape, your, your wife. And the wife is going to be called on to, to, to do this, respect your husband. So what's that mean? Let's dig it out just a little bit. Let, let's go up to verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he's the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. We'll come back and talk about that in a little bit. Husbands, agape, love your wives, just as Christ agape, loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing and water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Same way husbands ought to love their wives. So there's a call that goes on. And the first word that's given is to the guys. The men in the room. 
Hang with me, whether you're married or not, there's something that's going to be true for us as men that comes from our Creator, comes from our God. And the call is, the primary thing that you designate when you enter into a relationship in particular is you display and you enter into this covenantal thing, agape, toward that person. We are called to do that. That is defined as not an emotional state. It is a covenantal decision, an orientation of a life that says, my now primary purpose in my life, the calling on my life is self-sacrifice to give what enhances another who's entrusted to my care. Men are called and designed by God to be the initiators of activities and, des- and purposes in life that, will, that they will initiate, not for their own benefit, for, but for the benefit of others that have been entrusted to them. God calls on men to be initiators. He calls on men to be the resp- primary responsibility takers. There's an element of leadership involved in that. There's a shift in priority that I will tell you is completely outside my nature that that shift is not to look at my my what advances me what makes me feel certain things what satisfies me it is to completely shift that and make my priority an outlook and thinking and decisions that that what the result of which will be that i will be able to present somebody else at their best now think about this this assignment for men and this assignment for marriages men in marriage is directly connected with the original assignment given to Adam as a man in the Garden of Eden. God creates the man to be his image bearer. And this is what it says. You can just look it on the screen. Now, this is Genesis 2. The Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. This is before the woman has ever been made. And the man has an assignment. The, the, the earth is, is, in kind, is in the shape that God put. There's a garden planted, and he put the man... And and there he put the man he had formed, and he gives him an assignment. The man is given this assignment. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of of Eden, and it's the phrase says to work it and to take care of it. The Hebrew for that little phrase is very rich. It doesn't just mean men are supposed to be horticulturists or farmers. Here is what God was doing there. He created a realm... The purpose of the realm was to bring glory to its creator. And he says to the man, you're my representative. And this is what his assignment is. To move powerfully into the world that's in front of him. And to bring out its absolute best for the glory of its creator. That assignment was given to the man both for the garden and for his family, for his wife, and for his marriage. The theme of scripture when it talks to men is that same theme. Men are called to be the primary responsibility takers to protect and to provide and to serve. But the purpose of that is not to advance themselves. It's it's to represent the character of God in that it's for somebody else, some other entity that's been entrusted to him. And then God brings the woman and presents her to the man. Man says, this is now flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. And the man has, has a created being who he has the honor of saying, my job is to move powerfully into my world and bring out the best in this so that it brings glory to, it, to its creator, her creator. Now look back at Ephesians 5 and you'll see how that theme shows up there. The, the, the picture that's given to men is Jesus and the church where Jesus Christ sacrifices himself. He's not thinking about himself for the purpose of presenting the church 
the, the, the lost people who will be found and redeemed by his, his death on the cross and to present them back to himself, their, their God. Look at what it says. To make her, this is verse 26. 25 says, Christ gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives. It goes on to say, men don't do, take care of themselves better than they can. You know, they know how to take care of things. They do it with themselves. But that's supposed to shift onto that which has been entrusted to them. So God has given this as, as the assignment. And that assignment means there's a self-sacrifice. There's a covenant that says, my life is no longer going to be oriented around myself. I, I, last time I mentioned um, John Gottman, who uh, is, w- got a lot of notoriety for for 20 year study of 2,000 married couples, Department of Psychology, University of Washington, and was able to find predictors for divorce and, and for harmony in marriage. And he just it, this is this is interesting because, I, to my knowledge, John D- Gottman, I don't know that he knows the Bible at all. I don't know he's not a Christian, you know, circles kind of guy. But he said this, a strong undercurrent of two basic ingredients show up in healthy marriages. Guess what they are? Before the books got written. A strong undercurrent of two basic ingredients, love and respect. These are the direct opposite of and antidote for contempt, which is perhaps the most corrosive force in marriage. Years ago, a hymn writer named Brian Adams sang a song. And he said, don't tell me it's not worth trying for. You can't tell me it's not worth dying for. You know it's true. Everything I do, I do it for you. He doesn't, probably didn't know it, but he's reflecting a principle. That there's a call on men to be, for their whole orientation of their life, to be a covenant that says, I'm going to be, take responsibility to move powerfully into the created world, to create environments and settings where the, the enhancement that follows for that which has been entrusted to me comes to its best and then, then, then is presented back to its creator, pure, spotless, holy, as much as it can be. Do you know that when women are surveyed and wives ask for what they most long for, this is across the board, what they say, what they most yearn for from their husband, they say, it is, to, it is to be loved by them. They don't say be respected, although I'm sure that'd be fine. They don't even talk about being served or being, you know, credentialed or, or, or supported, but they say, I want to know, if I could know that the commitment that, that he has made to me is that he has put himself in that position, I would find rest. I find energy from that. Now, we're going to flip that. And there's far more we can talk about that. We can do whole seminars for men, and then we can do whole seminars for women because of the next word. I'm just going to touch on it today. And, what, and when Ephesians gives these assignments, some, perhaps oddly, it doesn't call on wives to love their husbands. Part of that, some have speculated, is that wives do that a lot more naturally. They, sac- they tend to sacrifice themselves. They tend to just serve and put themselves, put themselves apart so that others advance. But what they're called on to do is respect. And that, and that level of respect that's mentioned in verse 33 is actually the antecedent for that 
the means by which that happens is the word gets used a couple times earlier in the passage in verse 22 where it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now we hear submit, we go, whoa, 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 right? Wait a minute. No second class citizens here. Wait, no, no, no. No subservient here. This is not slave labor. That's because we have a picture of what submit means in our, in, that we tend to use. We need to understand that when God uses the word submit there, he does, it has nothing to do with slaves and masters. It has any more than Jesus being one who, the, the son who submits to his father makes him any less equal to God. There's a role, though, that goes with it, and, that, and it has to do with this respect principle. Twice it says there, verse 24, as the church submits or is intended to submit to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. The, the, what's conveyed there is the sense of respect for him. And what that means in, in the actual meaning of the word has to do with a conveyance of support. There is a full, the, the, the women are designed by God to be responders and nurturers and encouragers and reinforcers, to, to bestow a trust in somebody else that says, I'm going, this is, this is the way I say when we do premarital counseling. The assignment of the wife is to empower her husband to be able to lead without fear of shame. To help him understand that he is reinforced in his role. To come alongside in a way that enhances his confidence and says he is believed in, he is entrusted to. Somebody is going to put themselves in a position where they say, you can do what you do and I believe it. That is the essence of submitting. To entrust to the exercise of leadership with a, with a, a confidence that's chosen, that's, that's given Freely. Now, this goes back to Genesis also. Because when God created Eve, this is what it says about her, and again, from, probably familiar to a lot of you. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. We mentioned this phrase last week. I will make a helper suitable for him. There is a compliment to him. There is a reinforcer, a responder to him. And he says, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. The Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. There is a picture there from the very beginning and a primary assignment that her role is to come alongside and to be an empowerer and encourager to him. That is, when, when men are surveyed, when husbands are surveyed, and they're asked, what do you most yearn for? What do you most want from your spouse? They no, no, in no survey do they say, I want love. doesn't mean they don't. You know what they say they want? I want to be respected. In fact, Emerson Egridge has, has, has had a survey on that. And, he, and he, men were asked, if you were forced to choose one of the following, which would you prefer to endure? To be left alone and unloved in the world? Or to feel inadequate and disrespected by everyone. Now think about that for a minute. And it's possible that there might be a gender difference in how you respond to that when you hear that. 74% of men said they would prefer to be left alone and unloved in the world than to be disrespected. When men experience conflict with their wives, men were asked which they're more likely to feel. A, my wife doesn't respect me right now, or B, my wife doesn't love me right now. 81. 5% said they tend to feel my life, wife doesn't respect me right now. Most of those men say, when they're asked the question, does she love you? They go, no, I know she loves me. 
it flips when it's wives. Do they feel respected or do they feel loved? The vast majority of them say, I don't feel loved. There's a reason for that. We are wired differently. Do you know what Aretha Franklin did her song, the 60s, R-E-S-B-E-C-T? It became kind of the anthem for the feminist movement in the 60s, empowering of women, and they, and they sang, Sakatubi, 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 you know. Yeah. <laughs> What's not known is that song wasn't written by Aretha Franklin. It was written by another recording artist. His name's Otis Redding. Sitting on the dock of the bay guy. He wrote it two and a half years earlier. And he wrote it as a man, and he wrote it as a song, an anthem to sing to his wife. Basically to express, not out of anger, but out of desire, what I really need, what I really want, is your respect. Now, again, we need to notice that both those words are appropriate and, and part of what we are asked to give to each other. Okay, if you look at, if you look at 1 Peter 3, and again, we're going to go back and forth on this, but in 1 Peter 3, verse 7, you'll see it says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. All right, so men are called on to offer respect too. It's not like we're off the hook. But the point is, that when God decides and when God shares with us, this is what is going to have the effect of wholeness and vibrancy to a male-female relationship, especially in marriage, the man is called on to live out the assignment of love, agape. The woman is called on to live, on, live out the assignment of, of respect. And then something happens. And I'm going to, again, borrow from Egrich's on this, where he says we go into what he calls the crazy cycle. Some of you are familiar with this. Because you insert Genesis chapter 3 and the sin of mankind, the fall of man, and the curse that's put on man, which, by the way, if we had more time, we'd explain exactly how the curse corresponded to the assignments. Won't take the time to do that now. But we're still called to live out the assignments, and now failure is mixed, brought into the mix. Sin and selfishness and darkness is brought into the mix. We're no longer capable of doing what we're intended to do. We're still assigned to do it, but now we're flawed at it. So something happens, and here is the, here's the cycle that he shows. That there's a series of treatments and reactions that happen between a man and a woman, husband and a wife, and he calls it a crazy cycle. And what happens is that, it, that failure to come through emerges. That failure results in a fear that I'm not going to get or a demand or a desire that I'm not getting what I want and what I most need. And therefore, I must do something or, I might, or, or you're wrong for doing it. Blame starts to happen and therefore retribution happens. And so, what, so then when we don't get it, we react. Because the woman doesn't feel loved by her, her husband, she reacts to that by treating him without respect. He doesn't feel respect and therefore he stops saying she deserves to be loved. This cycle continues. What's crazy about it is the intention is, I'm going to treat you this way until you get your act together, until you get yours figured out. If you can get yours figured out, then we'd be good. I would, I would respect you if you would just love me. I would love you if you just respect me. And, it just, and there's this downward spiral that happens. The more we don't get it from each other, the more we try to coerce it by withdrawing the, the, what, what the other person wants, it just goes deeper and darker until John Gottman says in his... In his research, men tend to do one thing and women tend to do another in conflict. 
Men tend to stonewall, which means they withdraw relationship. They withdraw that which expresses that I'm for you and I'm with you and I'm on your side. They withdraw their agape love. And women, he says, tend to start scolding, shaming, complaining, criticizing, articulating disrespect for the man. This is what he says. 85% of husbands eventually stonewall their wives during conflict, which means withdrawing that which conveys love to them. Wives overwhelmingly utilize scolding, which is criticism and complaining in conflict, which is equal to disrespect, removal of trust and support and reinforcement. Now listen to this. Such interactions could produce a vicious cycle, especially in marriage, with high levels of conflict. The more wives complain and criticize, the more husbands withdraw and stonewall. The more husbands withdraw and stonewall, the more wives complain and criticize. If this cycle isn't broken, it will probably end in divorce. That's a sociologist citing statistics. But it reflects something that we see that's true from God. So we say, what I must have from you is not being given to me. And therefore, I'm, you're, you're gonna, somebody's going to pay for that. We begin to punish. And we punish by withdrawing what you want. That, that's what we figure is going to do. And that down, downward cycle happens. And you know, it's common, right? Because isn't that how I live in my other part of my life? If I go to a restaurant and they don't respect me, I'm going to withdraw what they most want from me. I'm going to withdraw my business from them. I'm going to say, I'll show you. You can't do that to me. Of course, I'm going to think naturally about doing that. With, it works. You, you yell loud enough, you get complained loud enough, you get reactions from people. We bring that into our marriages, assuming that's how it's supposed to work there. God says, here's the solution for that. This is where it starts. The only thing that breaks that cycle is agape, which brings a kind of love and a kind of respect that we are not capable of giving ourselves. It only comes from God. There is an unconditional love that is involved with agape. And there's an unconditional level of respect that's given. Now, let's talk about both of those for, for a moment. If you're in 1 Peter... You can take a look at, at just this little section with me. The call on, on me as a man and us as men is to bring, because God can only God can do it, but he can empower me, is to decide on an unconditional level of love that says, this is not going to be attached to anything I receive. Therefore, even in the face of accusation, even in the face of disrespect or barbs, or even in the face of what I think is crazy, irrational thinking that females do sometimes. Sorry, but that's just how it seems to me sometimes. There's a decision I make. that, that It could be irrational words or behaviors or reactions. And apart from that, I say I have made a covenant that I'm going to move powerfully into my world and I'm going to bring out that which is best for that which is entrusted to me, regardless whether she deserves it at the moment or not regardless whether it's recognized or rewarded by her or by anybody else, because it's not attached to that. Can I tell you that when I'm not being reinforced, when I'm not being respected, giving for somebody else's benefit is the last thing I want to do. I'm just telling you the truth. You don't deserve me. <laughs> That's what goes through my mind. 
You don't deserve to be treated well. You don't deserve somebody else to look out for you. If that's how I'm going to be treated, then, then you, got, you deserve the, the same. Which says that my relationship with Jesus Christ is paramount to whether I'm capable of doing this. It only comes from Him because I can't work that up in myself. But think about this. That kind of love, isn't that exactly... Who, what was the image that was given us in Ephesians 5, the, the word picture? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Romans 5 says that even when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He so loved us, agape us. Even when we're sinners, he was willing to sacrifice for us. That's my picture as a man. And so you get to, the, the, to 1 Peter 3, and you see that men are called on. Look at in verse 7, again, we, we talked about this last week a little bit. Husbands in the same way, and we'll get to what the same way is in a minute. Be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Your spiritual health is attached to this, your, your prayer. But that use that phrase, be considerate as you live with your wives. Be considerate that, that the phrasing, in my translation, it's one of the worst words that I think in, in the NIV translation because it does not mean be polite. It means be actively considering, be thinking all the time about what her needs are and what is best for her. Think about her that way. Sacrifice yourself to do that. The call is on a man to do that. Now, I'm just, I'm, I gotta keep going because then we talk about unconditional Okay, we talk about unconditional love. You've heard that phrase before, right? Have you ever heard the phrase unconditional respect? I will tell you, I don't hear that phrase very often, if ever. In fact, there's something about that phrase that doesn't sound right because I've always heard that respect is something that has to be earned. Listen to what Egrich just says about that. Time and again, I've had women tell me they've never heard the two words unconditional respect put together in the context of a relationship. For them, it's literally an oxymoron. They usually have no problem with the concept of unconditional love. Women, women never think of that as an oxymoron. But the Apostle Peter reveals, and we're going to see this in a minute, that husbands who are disobedient to the word, meaning they are undeserving of respect, may be won by respectful behavior. A simple application is that a wife is to display a respectful facial expression and tone when he fails to be the man she wants. She can give her husband unconditional respect in tone and expression even while confronting his unloving behavior and without endorsing his unloving reactions. He may deserve contempt, but, what, but that doesn't, listen to this, but that doesn't win him any more than harshness and anger wins the heart of a woman. Respect, he says, does something to the soul of a man. God made him that way. Now look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive. Again, there's that word, which has to do with giving, conveying, a, a, empowering him to be your leader without fear of shame. Do that to your husband so that he anticipates the question, yeah, but what if he's terrible at it? What if I pay a price for that? What if he fails at it? So that, even if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your, of your lives. In other words, when unconditional respect is given to them, 
God can use that to accomplish something in his life even when he's not deserving of it. I will tell you, and as, as much as it's true for the men, I know this is true for the ladies. That will go against everything, every fear in your heart, ladies. If the man in your life fails you, he fails to show his display true love for you. If you don't feel like you can trust his motives or his heart, the last thing you're going to want to do is treat him like he does. Treat him like he, you, you, that you will trust where he's leading, that you can entrust your heart to where he's going. Now, it's really fascinating to me that Peter invokes a, an example here. And he goes to the Old T- Testament, and he says, ladies, here's an example for you to follow. Look at what... Look at what it says. They should adorn themselves not with external things, but with internal things. Okay, in verse 4. That of your inner self, unfading beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And then, now listen to what he says. This is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God, really important phrase there, their hope wasn't in their husbands. Their hope was in God. They used to make themselves beautiful. They were respectful, I'll use that word, submissive, they empowered their husbands to lead without shame of fear. And here's an example, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master, unfortunate translation, means leader, initiator. Sarah did that with Abraham, called him her leader, her master. And you are her daughters if you do what's right and do not give way to fear. I think that is a huge statement. Of all the godly women God could choose in his word as an example of giving unconditional respect, she chooses Sarah and Abraham. It doesn't, you don't have to look at the life too long of Abraham and Sarah when they're traveling. God calls them. And yes, he's called a man after God, a a godly man, a righteous man. But Sarah watched Abraham do despicable things, make huge mistakes. Twice he lied about their relationship, just to protect his own skin. Abraham was a coward at times. Abraham was, uh, violated God's laws regularly. Abraham went on to, you know, make mistakes that are still costing our world internationally. And of all the examples, God says, take a look at Sarah, because look what she did. She gave, if I can use this phrase, unconditional respect to the position of her husband. She empowered him. She entrusted herself to him. She said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give this to you. Not because he deserved it, because she had put her hope in God. Her trust wasn't in her husband to protect her, to deliver what she needed. Her, her hope was in God. And she had fear, it says. She had fear and rightful fear. He had blown it many times, but she did not give way to fear. She made a choice. I will tell you, ladies, that I think it's impossible for you to do that toward us. Absolutely impossible for you to to muster up that kind of commitment, to to grant that level of respect to us as men because we're so flawed. Except unless the agape love of Jesus Christ is flowing through you, protecting you, empowering you in such a way that you can trust him enough that you can grant that to us. Now, sometimes people hear this kind of thing and they go, okay, okay, I'll try it. I'll try it. I'm going to go out 
And I'm going to, if I'm a, a wife, I'm, I'm going to grant respect to my husband. I'm going to try to convey facial expressions and tones that do not complain about it, that actually say, I, 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 I trust you. I, I believe in you. I respect you. As you lead, I will be supportive. I will be complimentary. I will be respond well. To, I, will, I will come alongside. And women, and women, well-intentioned women say that. Men say, okay, okay. I don't know. She's crazy, but I'll, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice. I'm going to be committed to love her. And then we try it for two weeks. So the light goes off, and we don't see any return. And I've heard this said, and I've thought this myself. Well, that doesn't work. Why should I keep doing that? Why should I make bad investments when I, the, my, the company I'm investing in looks like it's going bankrupt? And that is what's crazy about agape love. Agape love is irrational. It doesn't do things based on the return of investment. Agape love says, I'm going to do it for a different purpose. I will say it again. You cannot muster up that kind of commitment, that kind of lifestyle, unless the, your intimacy and connection with the Most High God, His love is sweeping over you regularly, channeling through your relationship with Him so that it spills out in your capacity to do it to somebody else. But when it happens, now hang on, because when it happens, there's something that is the exact opposite effect, and it is a wondrous thing. This is not just theory. There are people in the room right now who have put this into practice, and they have seen the fruit of this in their marriage. There are people that you could turn around to right now. There are people you can ask in cell group who would say, we have seen a measure of health come into our relationship because this is true. Egrich is, is going to call that the energizing cycle. And he says, regardless whether, like Peter says, regardless whether one spouse does it or not, we're still called to live out ours. But if both of them do, this cycle is an escalating cycle. It's an ascending cycle. So the man, the way he, when he dispenses those kinds of gestures of love and a, and a woman sees him do it, it, it does something over time. It motivates her. She feels empowered in it. She feels cared about. The things she's longing for are being given through the instrument, God's instrument in her life, through her husband. And what that does is it motivates her to a higher level of respect to him. Her respect for him is displayed to him by saying, I, I convey that I have confidence in you and I have trust in you and I can, I'll go where you're leading and I'm your partner and I want to fan into flame where you're going and what you do. Why? Because... Because she sees how motivated he is. And when she does that, it motivates him. And he's more motivated to be sacrificial and to give. When that happens, this cycle increases. And so the choice we've got as men, guys, this is our choice, is a decision, a covenantal decision to say, regardless what the response is, regardless what happens, I am going, I'm going to love her sacrificially, I'm going to orient my thinking so that I'm regularly making decisions and initiating and taking risks, but it's all for one purpose, to bring her to the highest level of potential she can be as a daughter of, of God, to present her flaw, as flawless as I have the capacity to try to put her in the position to become. And we do that, Egrich says, we do that through a, a number, he's got an acrostic for how to live it out, read the book, it's good, but 
He says, we do it by how close we will move to our spouses, how open we will allow our hearts to be with them, how understanding we will allow ourselves to be, even if we don't understand them, we'll at least respect the fact that they're different. I've heard it said once that you know, men will say, the old joke is you'll ne- men can ne- will never understand women, right? But the call of God is I don't have to understand women, but I have to try to understand one. And even if she doesn't think like me or act like me, I can understand that that's true and put her in positions where she's going to be successful. We go, we go on to say that somebody who can be a, a peacemaker and somebody who will show loyalty and somebody who will show esteem. What this boils down to is an intentionality and a priority among us as men. We don't just get passive and say, I bring home the bacon and I'm going to sit around and do what I want with my, my time. No, we are mapping out a path for our wives, for our marriages, for our children, a path that is going to take us towards something that strengthens them, that brings the best out of them. Men, can I just ask you to think about this? Maybe we talk about this in our groups this week. What are some ways you can do that? What are some practical ways you can be somebody who intentionally takes responsibility and moves powerfully into your world to create an environment and experiences where the woman who's been entrusted to you is enhanced. When she, the wife, does a similar thing, she makes a a covenantal, unconditional commitment to respect her husband, independent of whether she gets a return from it, whether she feels love from it. She conveys that her trust and support of him understands that he is designed to be somebody who, who, who who pursues conquest, which is his work and his achievement. That authority is something that he's given to be the protector and provider. That's, that, that, that there is a, a, a capacity with him to serve and to lead. It says, I believe in you as somebody who does that. That he's somebody who's designed to be somebody who sizes up situations and analyzes and counsels. He has insight. That he, has, he needs a shoulder-to-shoulder comrade in the march that he's going on. That he's somebody who, who, who desires and craves a kind of intimacy, even sexually, that shows him that he is somebody who is designed by God to be a penetrator. And there's an appropriateness to that. When a female will say that, articulate it to him, I believe in you, I will affirm it, even when they're not so sure, that somebody will say, I will defer to you, because God's put you in a position where you're the accountable one for where he's taking us. When, when we do that, it has this spiraling effect upwards. It empowers us. Ladies, can I ask you this question? What are some ways that could be enacted? What needs to be removed from your tone or your facial expressions or your, your words, your actions? And what, are the, what could it be replaced with that would convey an injection of support and response and trust Because your trust isn't in him, you know he'll fail. Your trust, your hope, is in God. A lot of you know a story that what led to us coming to plant this church just before it was an experience in Southern California where we closed the church. We failed in a church plant. And I've shared some of that with you before and what God was doing in me and the surgery he did on me that continues to this day. How I, where my identities found, um, excruciating pain in the middle of that. There was a moment, I, I, in my head, I've, I've narrowed it to one day. I'm not sure if it was, but it, it's pretty close. 
We, had, we, were, we were a thousand miles from most of the people we knew well. I had moved my family with a dream and a plan. None of that had come to fruition. The, the, the finances were gone. All my connections were, were severed in terms of, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't just go home. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a future. I, had, I didn't have anything. It was, it was a time for me as a man that I, the men in the room maybe can understand if, you, if you've ever been in a position like that where you feel so defeated and you feel so much like you're not a man that you don't know what to do with that. I have a moment, a, a vivid memory that I went to the YMCA and worked out and I got... And I got out of the pool, walked in the shower. There's nobody else in this gang shower. And I'm standing there. I turn on the hot water. I lean against the wall, and I could not move. I stood in that shower for 45 minutes at least. I couldn't move. I had no idea where we were going to go. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. I was ashamed. I was a failure. And I went home, and I, I needed to face a wife and a small child who had entrusted their path to my leadership. And now we're in a very, very vulnerable place. And I'll tell you, because of my background, what I'd seen modeled for you, you know, I, the shame I was expecting, the, the ridicule, the, the pressure, I, I, I already had heard, I heard it in my mind what those words were going to be. And when we sat down and had to have a discussion about what we were going to do, and one of those things was, all I know what to do is try to lead a church but i'm failed at that i got some people who are talking about the possibility i could come to a a city that i don't know and do something that i've never done before from scratch everything in me is screaming out that i'm i am i'm a complete failure and therefore i am not capable of leading and my wife in that moment she she turned to me and she said You are God's man. Nothing has changed. I said, everything has changed. I don't have finances. I don't have resources. She said, nothing has changed. You are his chosen vehicle to lead our family. And wherever he takes you next, and if it happens again, I will go with you. cannot begin to tell you what that did in my weakened state in my most vulnerable vulnerable moment there was something that God did that empowered me that said I will go forward I will trust God I will do this again that was the greatest gift I could have been given in that moment. And I will tell you that so much of the man I am, whatever that man is today, is a result of God working through the spouse he gave me to say, I'm going to stay in my role. I'm going to convey unconditionally the respect that I'm called on to give you. And she let it happen. I believe that the greatest gift you can give your spouse or significant other is to take what God said and find true, real, tangible ways in the middle of fear and uncertainty, in the middle of anger even, and, and a level of, of un, you're not sure at all it would happen, that you would take his assignment and display it consistently to your spouse and watch the cycle of energizing happen. 
It may not be immediate. It may not be everything you want, but it will be whole and healthy. Let me just ask you, invite you to consider this. That in order for that to happen, in order for it to start in your life, but in order for it to be sustained, you need the outside source of agape love coming from your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And it could be that some of us, when we think about what we need most in our marriage today, and you say, what should I go out of here and do? The first thing that needs to happen is you and God do some business. If you don't know him personally, if you've never embraced his forgiveness through the cross of Jesus to say, this is where it starts, this is where the channel gets connected, that his love is connected back to you, you're brought back to life because you say, I submit to you and I trust what you've done on the cross to pay for my sins. Make me your child. Restore me. That's where it starts. But then for a whole lot of us, we still, we know him, but we're just independent from him. And maybe it's time to do some business with him to say, oh, I don't, re- I ne- I don't realize how much I need you. I can't do this. Connect with him. Pour out your heart to him. Invite him to cleanse you and walk with you and, and be, empower you. And he, it, it, the source giving of his agape will flow through you. Do you need to establish that? And do you need you're invi- I'm just throwing out this invitation. To be, even though you're flawed, even though you know you're not capable, but to ma- take a step toward your spouse, significant other, and say, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to make a commitment that I'm going to live out the calling of my life on you. Regardless what the results are, simply because that's what God made me to do. Watch the cycle and see what happens. Watch what it does to our marriages. Bow with me. Let's pray. Guys, we linger in your presence, and some of us need to call on you right now, and we're about to hear a song that reflects some of this. Would you use this? Would you draw our hearts? Would you break our hearts? For some of us, our pride is so strong, our anger is so intense, we can't see or feel anything else. We're so accusatory. Would you just break that? Would you give us a hope that comes from you? Would you give us a repentance that turns to you? For some of us, maybe for the first time in our marriage, to truly grant something to our spouse that reflects you. And then when we do that, we know we are combining with you. We're inviting you into this union so that it's not just us and our spouse. It's you and us together. And that bond empowers us so that we can live out a marriage that we never even knew was possible. Would you restore marriages here? Would you give us hope? Would you take us to another level? And thank you so much that you give us direction for that to happen. We pray in anticipation of health and forgiveness and healing and goodness because of what you'll do in our lives. And we pray through your son. Amen.